0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we are expanding our discussion of the digital revolution, of course, to talk about that other revolution in the world today, COVID-19, turning our world upside down, rattling some things. And through a lot of the dark stuff we're all hearing, uh, we're looking to for some sense of getting past this, getting back to our lives, getting over the heartbreak that so many people have and rediscovering this notion of being able to help each other in ways we hadn't had. And in that, uh, in that context today, we've got our dear friend Chris Lockhead on. Chris, of his many contributions in different ways about this, and he's got some good ones to share today. I think Chris is the originator of this notion of radical generosity in this time of crisis. Chris, thanks for coming back to Cloud Wars Live. I hope you're doing okay.
1: Uh, we're doing, we are doing okay. It's, um, look at, if you're a human being, you care about other human beings, this is hard. And then there's all of the personal hardships that, that we all have, uh, dealing with whatever components uh, of all of this that we're dealing with. Um, so in the context of, uh, it sucks, we're doing great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But, uh, but good. You know that, uh, <clears throat> the guy in King Lear said, you know, as long as we can say this is the worst, it ain't the worst. So um, I, I'm trying to take uh, you. I always felt we're a little bit of a Shakespeare, King Lear sort of guy, Chris. So there's yet another connection.
1: Um, yeah, I think it's, I'm paraphrasing the quote. I might not get it 100% right, but it's it's Churchill. Um, if you find yourself walking through hell, keep going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well said, well said. So Chris, uh, just let me, one more thing here for our our friends who are listening or watching. Uh, Chris Lockhead has had a legendary career of a few different kinds. He's been a CMO a few times He's a serial entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author. He has now become one of the most popular podcasters in the world. Many people feel he's the number one business podcaster in the world. And his podcast is called "Follow Your Different." And Chris's, I think, some ways, Chris, your personal philosophy, your business philosophy, has been this notion of understanding and embracing the different way of looking at things. And so, for all you folks, if you haven't seen or heard Chris before, um, really check out his stuff there, "Follow Your Different." And Chris is a monthly guest with us here at Cloud Wars Live, where he brings in the true sense of that "Follow Your Different." theme that uh that that he tracks uh, a different way of looking at stuff so chris you've got a lot of airtime here and you've got some fantastic things to talk about so i'm just going to turn it over to you when you need to take a breath or something let me know but otherwise the show is yours my friend
1: and take (laughs) over well I
0: wait wait a minute that's a little dangerous (laughs) what did i just say
1: yeah don't give a madman the keys to your favorite (laughs) car um so, look, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be back here. I think this is uh, an important time for all of us to be together and to share and to talk and um, to, yeah, I found myself um, uh, no longer using the phrase social distancing because um, we want to be as socially close, I think, as we can and, and socially connected. So, I find myself preferring physical distancing because I, I want to be socially connecting if I, even if we have to physically disconnect or physically distance. Um, so, I think it's just, uh, let me share with you some of the things that um, uh, me and some friends have been talking about over the last few days and um, just sort of set, uh, set a context with you. Um, so, obviously, in, in roughly a month from an economic point of view, we've gone from what was on most measures uh, the strongest economy um, in modern history in the United States to literally the worst economy since ww2 um and who knows where it's going to go right uh and we'll talk more about the economic stuff um the exponential growth of this virus um has been beyond heartbreaking to watch as it happened elsewhere in the world to see you know as somebody that spent a ton of time in italy and doors the country and the people um, to see beautiful Italian churches with uh, caskets in them, and then now to see what's happening in in our country of the United States, and and to see, um, you know, the governor of California, the governor of uh, New York, begging for help on television, um, and to, and to see um, U.S. Navy ships parking in New York and and uh, California. So it's, it's uh, an extraordinarily painful time, and I think you're not a human being or you're not paying attention if um, at moments this just I mean, kicks you in the chest. It, it does me. Uh, and uh, you know, I've done my fair share of crying since, since this thing started. And so I think we all have to just um, continuously find a new um, new set of skills to keep walking through this fire. Um, On the economic side, you know, just recently, um, some things have come out that are stunning. Uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, CEO of JPMorgan Chase said, uh, GDP could plunge at a 35% annual run rate in Q2 and that the downturn would would last through the rest of the year and that unemployment could spike as high as 14% in this environment. So, Jamie Diamond just came out and said that. Um, our mutual buddy, uh, the world's number one uh, tech analyst, Ray Wong, says this is going to take a lot longer than June. And the aha, and maybe I'm stating the obvious, but the aha is um, we can't protect ourselves at scale other than staying away from each other. And we certainly can't think about uh, an economic comeback in, in any meaningful way until we get a couple things done. One is we have to have comprehensive testing, we have to know who has this and who doesn't. And there's been some stunning stuff about this, and it get, keeps getting clearer as more and more data comes out that it looks like potentially, and of course, caveat, caveat, I'm no doctor and I don't have a high school diploma, so be careful, right? Um, Uh, but that maybe 50% of the people who have this thing don't know it and are spreading it. And so it's now become clear that we need a test that not only uh, works with people who are symptomatic, but of maybe equal importance. What do I know? I'm clearly not a doctor, although, you know, depending on what you have, I'll take a look. Um, But uh, we need comprehensive testing that can test equally people who are not symptomatic, Uh, and people who have symptoms to know for sure who the fuck has this and who doesn't, right? So if we want to go back to work and we want to know that we can do life without making anybody else sick, um, we need to have that. Um, And then, of course, um, we need treatments that are highly effective and we need vaccines. And so until those three things are happening at scale, testing, treatment, and vaccines – it's going to be very hard um, to come back and be anything like normal. And so in that regard, um, Bob, one of the smartest venture capitalists that I know uh, a guy who's been at the top of the Forbes uh, list of venture capitalists for many years. um, I spoke with him earlier this week and he said to me, what, what they are telling their entrepreneurs is you need to stretch the runway in your business. And what stretch the runway way means in a startup world is take your cash position, divide it by 36 months. And that's your minimum cash burn a month because their estimation is it will take 36 months for us to deal with the um, healthcare side and the economic side to where we're coming back to anywhere near where we were before. And when I called him Bob, I was originally calling him this is a very smart guy, and he knows like the biggest of the dingest of the dongest people in, in the tech and scientific world. And you know, he's that kind of a guy. And I, I hadn't really spoken to him since this happened, and so I was hoping that I would call him, and we'll just call him Jimmy. His name's not really Jimmy, but I'd say to him, "You know, Jimmy." Um, know tell me what the really smart people know and he would tell me some awesome thing that would like make me feel better about both the healthcare situation and the economic situation and i i could maybe ease off on some of the the jack daniels <laughs> instead halfway through the conversation i cracked open a new bottle um so uh if i can mix metaphors it was a sobering conversation while i was not wanting to be sober uh and so so I think this thing is 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 very very tough. I also think one thing on the economic side I'm pissed off about. Uh everybody keeps saying it's a 2 trillion dollar bailout. It's not. It's a 6 trillion dollar bailout. 2 trillion are going to the American people, hospitals, small businesses. 4 trillion is going to be be giving to um big business. And it's not clear who's doing the oversight to make sure that on the six trillion there isn't corruption or, or pork or stupid projects that have nothing to do with saving the American people and restoring the American economy um, so I, I don't know I scratch my head like what the where the fucks the media on describing this bailout um, now the flip side of this is if you believe that we're in more trouble than maybe was uh, articulated and if you believe that this notion that the economy is going to roar back in a V uh, is is more than likely not the case, then we're already starting to hear signals that we need more bailout money. And so uh, it's starting to get clear that um, it's going to take more than the six trillion. And so we have to be smart about what it's going to take. and. We have to have oversight. We have to have radical transparency and governance. Um, and I'm, I'm building to a bigger point. Um, I'm building to a bigger point on this. Okay, so that's sort of another thing that's been on my mind in the topic of discussion. Where's the oversight on the bailout? And uh, how come nobody's talking about the fact that it's six trillion, not, not, not uh, two? Uh, and by the way, just by way of reference, the U.S. economy is roughly 21 trillion in GDP. So, I don't know. Is the bailout going to end up being 10 trillion for this? Is it going to be roughly half the U.S. GDP that we're going to have to figure out how to marshal to make this happen? It's its a staggering set of thinking. All right, moving from there, there's been another conversation that has been rolling around Um, a lot, which is um, the the first reported case was, of course, in the Seattle, Washington area. Um, Another interesting aha is approximately 8,000 Chinese nationals a day were landing in California airports, mostly from what I understand. Uh, LAX and SFO, there may be some others. Uh, My understanding is there there were at least one, maybe more than one direct flight from Wuhan to um, um, uh, both Northern and Southern California. I may be wrong about that, but I know there are direct flights. Um, Regardless, it's been reported 8,000 Chinese nationals a day landing in California, and that California is the number one US destination uh, for Chinese tourists. So, a conversation that's been going on around here is, okay, so um, why isn't California, or for that matter, uh, Washington, why didn't they become New York, and why did New York become New York? Um, And the answer that you most often hear goes uh, along the lines of, of, of the effectiveness of physical distancing and the fact that there's a massive density difference, right? I mean, New York City uh, and the boroughs are much more dense than the vast majority of California and much fewer people live in high rises and uh, the subway system and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things you can point to that sound smart that might be the explanation. Um, but just today, we woke up to discover that Stanford is is starting a survey to try to uh, or study rather to try to figure out if what's part of what's going on is that California developed "quote unquote" herd immunity. That is to say, um, as the disease was starting in China, that it got to California quickly, that um, some meaningful number of people got exposed to it the symptoms were reported as flu symptoms because we didn't know any different. Um, That uh, in roughly the November, December timeframe, there was talk here that it looked like the flu season was going to be worse than normal. Some people are saying that might've been attributed to COVID being here and us not realizing it. And so there's this theory that maybe part of what's going on, was California sort of slowly got exposed to it over a period of time. And it it sort of moved more like a normal flu than it has moved in other parts of the world for one reason or another. And if you believe what Fauci is now saying that potentially 50% of people who get this thing are not symptomatic, don't become symptomatic and give it to others. That if it sort of hit California and spread more easily, or I don't know what the right adjective to use might be, Bob, but spread differently for whatever set of factors that maybe this explains why um, the situation on the coasts are, partic- are so different. And anyway, Stanford's going to go look at this. Okay, so what does all this tell me? What's the big connection between the human cost that we're uh, suffering through the economic cost we're suffering through, and some very big questions that we don't have answers to uh, about how this thing spreads and what we can do to take care of ourselves and others and what medications may or may not work and what, what preventions may or may, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What does this all point to, to me? This is a data problem. This is a digital transformation problem. And I've been talking to some smart, smart people uh, like my friend who, you know, Jason Maynard at Oracle NetSuite. And I've been talking to, as you know, uh, I have some good friends at Splunk and I've been talking to Doug Merritt and many of the executives there. I've been talking to a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of other smart CEOs and leaders of one sort or another. And so this is me synthesizing their thinking. Um I think Doug Merritt's right. I think this is a data problem. And what I mean by that is if you look at many of the most valuable, both economically and frankly, uh societally, businesses in the world today, they're native digital businesses, they're digital businesses or they're businesses that in a meaningful way have gone through what most of us in the tech world call digital transformation. And digital transformation, and you talk about it all the time, you're a thought leader in this regard, is both a mindset, a data mindset, as well as being able to harness technology and exploit it for, um, for business advantage and for hopefully societal advantage as well. So what do we know about this from a data perspective? Well, we know in the United States, there was data that was beginning to emerge now as early as January that suggested this could be a very big problem. We know that there's uh, a, a lot of planning that didn't happen that could have happened if people had paid attention to the data. We know that many um, uh, digital tra- much digital transformation has not happened in the hospital supply chain. That is to say, there's not a lot of visibility and control in one hospital system as to what their supply chain is, never mind cross-system. We know there's a lot of private and public hospitals that share very little uh, meaningful data. We know that there are barriers cross-state around sharing uh, information and data around healthcare, care, uh, around supply chain. Um, and so... Uh, I think when you when we look at this thing with a careful eye, one of the things, one of the learnings is we have experienced in the business world massive value created by native digital businesses and massive value created by long time existing businesses with long heritage, long success, who have in one way or another embarked on meaningful, what most of us would call digital transformation. And and so by way of example, uh, we now understand that Walmart, Costco, and Amazon, by way of example, are not just legendary category-dominating businesses. They're fucking essential services. And all three of those companies, by way of example, there's many others we can talk about, have, of course, Amazon's native digital, and you would be a fool to not acknowledge the incredible things that companies like Walmart and Costco have done to digitize their supply chains, to digitize the front end of their customer experience and and become omnichannel companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so to say they haven't been incredible at those things would be ridiculous. And so what's my point? Those three businesses, by way of example, because they are digital businesses have been able to respond, have been able to execute, have been able to do forward planning to stay in front of this thing in a way that our governments and our healthcare system has not. Why isn't anybody asking the question, how is it possible that Costco, Walmart, and Amazon haven't gone down. How is it possible that they have maintained their supply chains? How is it possible that these companies in the middle of this crisis are onboarding hundreds of thousands of people? If I'm not mistaken, Amazon's trying to hire 100,000 people. I don't know what the numbers are for Costco and Walmart, but they got to be big numbers. Just think about what it takes... Fuck managing a digital supply chain. Just think about onboarding 100,000 people in a matter of weeks, okay? So what's my point? My point is these native digital businesses that are now clearly societal essential services have scaled, anticipated, and performed at an extraordinary level. And I don't give a shit if some of the locations ran out of some toilet paper. The reality is... These three companies, and there's many others, I'm just focusing on, on these ones, have performed in a legendary way and are a big part of what's keeping society functioning in America right now. Now, ask yourself, has that level of, let's just call it, execution ability, that level of leadership, that level of management in the big M management way in the Peter Drucker management way. Have we seen that from much of our healthcare system? Have we seen that from federal state or local? We haven't. There've have been failures at all levels at multiple times in multiple places. And what's the failure been? Well, you can argue it's been a lot of things, but at the root of it is data. The ability to get to the data, to collate the data, to connect the right dots, and of course, to take meaningful, massive action on that data. And so the aha for me in all of this, when I back out of the, you know, the the feeling I get sometimes over this experience where I feel feel like there's a 500-pound guy with a boot on my chest and I can't breathe. Um, But when I step back from all of it, I think one of the things that we're learning here is there's a major delta between what our um, uh, businesses, what our enterprises, what our startups have been able to do in the face of this crisis, compared to what, for the most part, our our governments have been able to do. And so I think the interesting thing for those of us in the tech industry, at a time where I think many, many, many of us are coming together to try to do the right thing. And we're now seeing, private public partnerships that are absolutely extraordinary and wonderful. And there's some wonderful businesses I'd like to tell you about if we get a chance. Some people doing some amazing things I've heard of. Small businesses, major corporations, it's it's very heartening to see. And um, regardless of your politics, it is, it is pleasing for me to see business leaders on stage with the president talking about what some of their companies are trying to do and ho- hospital chains giving free beds to Uh, healthcare heroes because they can't go home to their families because they can't risk infecting their families. And so healthcare heroes have to stay at a a, um, a hotel provided by uh, one of the major chains and all these things that are being done. Uh, So I I think we're seeing a spirit of cooperation amongst the private and public sector that we've never seen before. And the aha for me, for those of us in the tech world, Bob, is it's time for digital transformation in government. It's time for digital transformation in healthcare and not just in how we provide healthcare, but the healthcare supply chain. And it's time for private and public to come together in a meaningful way to make that happen because it's a human imperative. What we have learned is in a crisis, data saves lives. and. Um, we need to get focused on that. We need political leaders. We need government leaders and bureaucrats. We, and I say bureaucrat in a good way, life, lifelong committed public servants, okay? We, we've seen how important these people are. Um, so let's acknowledge them for it, right? Um, access to the data, the ability to connect the dots, and the ability to act in real time, the ability to adjust on the fly as new information comes in, in a highly dynamic situation. Amazon, Costco, and Walmart have been able to be flexible and scale and change in a way that our public institutions have not. And so I think it is um, an opportunity for all of us and I'll go this far with you, Bob. I think it's a civic duty of the information technology industry to figure out how we partner with all levels of government and the healthcare industry to get on this problem.
0: Chris, uh, thanks. That that's a uh, powerful stuff there. You know, I, um, I saw on one of the evening briefings, my guess is this was a week or 10 days ago, some very, very impressive people. And I've loved it too. My favorite ones have been when there's a mix, as you indicated, of the public sector and private sector people up there. And when you hear what some of those CEOs are talking about, what their companies are doing, how they've switched, how they're pivoted, how they're rolling, and just those people up there talking as human beings, not as you know quarterly earnings, automatons, going through it. But seven, 10 days ago, uh, a woman named Seema Verma, and I think she's in the HHS system, but she said, I'm so proud of my team. We got in there and, and processes that usually take 18 to 24 months. We got those done in a matter of weeks. Now, to me, I... I that to me is going to be one of the big things that come out of this, you know, the huge overarching issues you're describing, right. But also somebody said, why does it take a year and a half or two years? Well, because it does until something comes up that means it doesn't. So I I think that there's been a lightning bolt put through some of these uh, parts of the bureaucracy uh, that, you know, and I I too mean that in the best way, as you said, but I hope what comes out of this is this notion that there, is not this requirement that things be done the way they were in the past just because that's how it is that you say hey look this is how things move slowly here six months it's six months you know maybe i can make it five and a half but i can't go beyond that and when you chris hammer home this notion of a data problem um, i think that that's really it a lot of the people maybe they thought that doing nothing or doing a little thing slowly was better than trying to do something big that they didn't understand because they didn't have the idea. They didn't have the answer. They didn't have the data. They didn't have the perspective. So I think you're right on that. And uh, you know, a few times as you mentioned this issue about the data problem and Doug Merritt, some of the other folks you described, I always think of uh, when Jim bark was at FedEx, you know, guys and Netscape and all, but he said in one meeting, look, he said, uh, if if you've got opinions, I'm not really interested. He said, if you've got data, let's see the data. But if all you have are opinions, we'll go with mine. And um, I, I just, I, I, I thought that was priceless. And we see this really coming to the fore today uh, in so many different ways here. But Chris, if I could just uh, tack on a couple things to what you said We see on the the highest end, those three companies representing a number of other companies that are equally great. But I agree with you, Walmart, Amazon, Costco have just been extraordinary, not only in the execution, but raising the profile of what they do to being, as you said, essential services. You know, talk about life and death and chaos and order and disorder and, you know, an utter nationwide total disaster versus something that is uh, tough and unpleasant, but relatively isolated. You know, they're, they're extraordinary. Take a step back from what those folks do, right? Farmers, truck drivers, uh, machinists, people who keep these things running, you know, delivery people. I heard a guy saying the other day that he works for a company that services copying machines. And he said, so for all these testing services and clinics and doctor's offices and hospitals that have to make copies of things and move documents around move information around yeah we should get away from the paper eventually but but you know somewhere up in there are these incredible people but you know above all man those uh the nurses and the doctors who go in there they you know they they strap on on every day it's it's not the right they are they are the warriors of the 21st century here you know, in every sense of the world. So if we can, and I'm sorry if I'm being Pollyannish about it, but I, I'm an optimist, and I want to believe that there will be some of these widespread lessons that are learned. That because somebody does hard, dirty, dangerous manual labor, is not an indication of that you know, some sense of, well, it's unsophisticated. What does he or she know about this or that? But it's the value of the work that those people do towards sustaining everyday normal life for people, you know, to keep the civil society up and running. So I hope there's more recognition of that. I hope there's more of this public-private partnership you talked about. I hope some people start to understand that these, because a business is big and capable and powerful and it makes money, doesn't mean that it's rotten and dirty and you know deserving of scorn and regulation and you know on and on like that. there's some big uh, uber lessons to be learned here, some changes maybe in how we approach things and look at things. but I agree, Chris, uh, wholeheartedly, your fundamental point, if we don't start to help the healthcare organizations hospitals, within the hospitals, within the systems as you talked about, governments to be able to get a better handle on what's really going on now. We're gonna repeat this um, this harrowing uh situation that we're in right now over and over and other sorts of things. All right, we'll we'll beat the COVID thing, but what's the next one? You know, where do we go from here? So brilliant summation, Chris, an overview of sort of what got us here, where we stand. And now I think, you know, Karen Ford, you've got some thoughts on how do we move forward in the right sort of ways and attack this problem around data?
1: So I think the first thing is um, as a country, we need a digital strategy, right? I mean, a while ago now we had entrepreneur uh, Tom Siebel on the podcast and he's got a new book out on digital transformation and he, he quotes uh, Putin who I think in, in 2017, I think, Uh, and I'm paraphrasing the quote, but the quote from Putin is something to the effect of the country that wins in AI is going to rule the world. Right? So, so look, we need a digital strategy as a nation and we need a, we need a declared commitment that we are going to, we are going to continue to lead, right? This is a leadership position that we have, but you know, Huawei is a lot bigger than it was five years ago. Right. And so um uh who would you rather have be the dominant player, Cisco or Huawei? Who would you rather have be, you know, the 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 dominant um social platform? Instagram or TikTok? You know, I don't know. Am I the only person that finds TikTok spooky? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm nuts. But anyway, my point is I think we need a national digital strategy and we have to go after it. Um we have to go after it in a very meaningful way because underpinning this problem, a big part of this problem has been um, inability to uh, access and leverage and most importantly, act on data. And the other thing from a mindset perspective is sometimes the data tells us stuff that doesn't fit with our own personal fucking narrative or said in a simpler way makes the opinion that we currently have not right anymore. Right. And we're all myself included. um, You know, we don't love it when data proves us wrong. Right. But we got to be more committed to the data than to opinion, to your, to your Barksdale story. Right. We, we, we um, you know, I was afraid to talk about this, this whole thing about California and Washington not being New York because I was afraid, well, if I say this, are people gonna stop physical distancing or are people gonna stop taking the, the virus seriously? And I'm not in any way being some weird ass conspiracy, I'm not doing any of that shit. All I'm saying is, hey, listen, some smart people have come forward and asked this question and now smart people, Stanford, I don't know, I don't have a high school diploma, but last time I looked, Stanford's a pretty smart fucking place. These guys are going to go look at what's going on here. Okay, that's good. Let's find out what the fuck. There's a, my point is there's a lot we don't know about this virus. And the more data, the more research we have, I think the better off we're going to be. And from, from a um, uh, government and healthcare system point of view, this has exposed the fact that the private sector is far ahead on digital transformation than the, than the public sector.
0: Chris, let me throw in one quick thing here. You you had mentioned Cisco, you know, a phenomenal company. But uh, so your point about uh, we we need to be open and somewhat humble to the possibility that the data will tell us that our opinions are wrong. So just over 20 years ago, late 90s, you know, Cisco was in the just hockey stick time of its growth, really ascending to becoming one of the great companies on the planet. And Cisco had been growing so rapidly. And remember, they were a great manufacturing company. They made tons of big, complex stuff. So to keep up with all the orders, they built this, you know, really world-class, one of the, you know, probably the most advanced in the world supply chain, demand chain, logistical system in the world. Great, 98, 99, this thing is humming. It's telling them everything they want to know. 2000, March of 2000 it starts telling them, hey, crank down the manufacturing, the orders are slowing, things aren't so good, we're missing some quotas, stop buying so many parts, and all the Cisco executives says, wow, that system is wrong. You know, that, that cannot be true. And they kept on buying stuff, and about three or four months later, they realized, no, the data were right, but our, our gut level thing was wrong. So this is wired into us at some level that has to be, um, you know, I burned out. We've we've all got to get after this because otherwise we will have fixed the data problem, but we'll have, you know, gone forward with the, you know, human stupidity problem of saying that, no, the data is wrong. My impressions are right.
1: And fundamentally, we have to ask ourselves, what are we about? And if we're about producing the results, and in this conversation, It's the results for creating a healthy society. It's the results for doing what our government at all levels, I believe their primary responsibility is, which is to keep us safe. And then their next responsibility is to create an environment where we can thrive and pursue our happiness. But we can't do that shit unless we're safe. And there's all kinds of threats, right? And, um, We got to be focused on the result, and I would rather look stupid and get the result, right? Isn't that what we're more committed to? Why is it so hard to say, hey, listen, I had this opinion. I learned these facts, and now I don't have that opinion anymore. I have a different one. Uh, look, I understand I'm a human being. I, I understand the experience of not wanting to look stupid. But at the same time, if you take an open mindset, if you take a curiosity mindset, and my point here, if you take a data mindset, what is the data telling us? Um, then, then I don't think we have to be, we can be more nimble. We can be less wedded to a spot and more committed to an outcome, more committed to some mental dexterity, more committed to uh, action based on data and smart thinking, even if it disproves uh, my current position or my prior position, and even if it makes me look stupid. I don't say, fuck it, say it, I'm sorry, I was stupid. I didn't get it, now I get it. We could say that, and you know what? Here's the other thing, we could let each other off the hook for it too.
0: That might be the toughest of all,
1: right? Here's what I know. When smart committed people are working on something and they get some shit wrong, let's cut them some slack. Right? He, in our country, we question people's intentions. Let's cut them some slack.
0: Chris, you're uh notion that i i your idea that i had mentioned at the top of the show about radical generosity which you brought up several weeks ago which I, i just think is incredibly powerful but you talked a little while ago too about radical transparency and maybe some of the things that you know you know pull together here i was thinking about this you are really becoming a proponent of in some ways this is radical reality radical life why don't we cut some people some slack if their interest and their pursuit is going in the right direction? What's the right outcome? Uh, science is full of people who have had a hypothesis that was wrong. Good, they correct it. They learn. They go in the right direction. On we we go. We we spend uh, uh, you know the first fifteen to twenty years of our lives learning, you know how not to do so many dumb things. Now some of us. Don't quite take those lessons to heart uh, you know for the next forty or fifty years, but you know we learn along the way, and this is not a time for pointing so i I loved your sort of sweeping notions here of a radical redefinition of things about generosity, about transparency, about commitment, about honesty, and about a focus on the things that really matter versus the stuff that are short term sort of petty bullshit that we engage in maybe to make ourselves feel good, but actually it cheapens us and it diminishes us and it does nothing for the greater cause.
1: Can I share with you a story about this? Yeah, please. So roughly two weeks ago, uh, my wife Carrie started digging around and then I started digging around with her. And what we're digging around for is what's the plan in where we live, Santa Cruz County? So, if you think about the daily briefings of Cuomo and de Blasio and Newsom and Garcetti and, you know, uh, I forget the guy's name up in Seattle, but, you know, there's been a a lot of political leaders who've been, in my opinion, radically transparent about telling us what's up. And in particular, things like where we are with the plan, like how many cases we're anticipating when we think an apex could hit how many beds we have, how many ventilators we have, how much PPE we have, and based on a forecast and timing of that forecast, how much we need and what the delta between what we have and we need is and what we're trying to do to solve that delta and, 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 and. There's been a lot of discussion about this. We've all seen this. So a couple weeks ago, Kerry starts asking, okay, well, uh, who's asking those questions and more importantly, who's answering those questions in our area? Here's the net of it. We find out There's no plan. I got a copy of it. I'm not supposed to have it. It's called the incident action plan. People can say to me, Oh yeah, yeah." pat me on the head. We have a IAP little citizen. Don't worry about it. So I got a hold of the IAP. It doesn't include any of that. Anyway, so uh, me and a group of concerned citizens, um, started getting incredibly vocal with our local leadership about this. Um, so that's kind of point A. As that was going on, there was another group of citizens who were on another topic, which is, holy shit, the net net of what we were working on is, the county's not ready. If, this, if we have a surge in Santa Cruz, people will die unnecessarily. That was the net of it. And that was another big reason I felt this boot on my chest. Um, and then there was another group of folks sort of understanding that the county was not in a position to deal with this, you're talking about a county with 300,000 people that had roughly 280 hospital beds in it and roughly 40 ventilators. Okay. So look, grade 10 math was the hardest 12 years of my life. But if 1% of the population needs medical care, that's 3000 people. And if 0.5% of the population needs medical care, that's still 1500 people. We have 260 or 280 beds. Houston, we got a problem, and who's working on the problem, right? So understanding that, there's this other group of people going, hey, we need to shut down harder. We're a beach town. We're a tourist town. There are people who think stay in place means go to the beach. Southern California locked their beaches down, shut down surfing two weeks ago. Our beaches are open. We have 50 surfers sitting in the water on top of each other. And there's, there's some scientists who say it, it spreads more in the water. I don't know, what do I know? But the bottom line is, tourists come into town. So the cops are getting frustrated with it. They start sighting people. If you're out of town and you're on our beaches, they start handing out tickets and shit, and they start having to do crowd control. So there's this other group of concerned citizens going, hey, shut the beaches. And then we find out, okay, Easter's coming and, um, the crowds are coming because the forecast for the weather is going to be great. It's going to be perfect weather in Santa Cruz. It's going to be a long weekend and the beaches are open and we got 280 hospital beds. Now I've come to find out there is a plan now. And that plan has us getting to in the high 400s under 500, but 400 and something beds because they're standing up a whole bunch of emergency beds. Okay. So that's better. But still, if we need 1,500 beds, we're still going to be 1,100 short. So maybe they're working on that now, too. I think hopefully they are after a, a shit ton of pressure, like tons of pressure, local media, you know, social campaigns, calling the governor, calling in Congress. I mean, literally a group of citizens saying, hey, this aggression will not stand, man. Our county's not ready if a surge comes thousand people are going to die. Let's get in front of this thing. And we were, so here's my point. There's been a group of citizens pounding on the county and the city to get on a number of topics and it took them a while to get going, but guess what? Now they're building beds. Guess what? Last night, the county announced for, I forget how many days it might be, it's a week or so, including of course the holiday weekend over Easter, all the beaches are shut. Now, those are huge victories because collectively now in our county, we are taking thoughtfully aggressive action to do the only thing the experts tell us we can do in the absence of testing, in the absence of treatment, and in the absence of, of course, a vaccine, that we can do, which is to quote Samuel L. Jackson, stay the fuck at home. Now, here's my big point in all this. There was a period of about a week and a half where there were many citizens, myself included. I was interviewed on local television. I mean, I was at the front of the parade on a bunch of this stuff, pounding our local leadership on this, throwing them under the bus when they started to take these actions that I just described to you, here's what I did. I publicly thanked them for their leadership. And here's the other thing that I know. I'm not sitting in their seat. They were dealing with a whole lot of other things too. Now there was a group of us that were terrified that there were some very big blind spots. And I believe That if you won't stand up now, under what circumstances would you stand up? And as a naturalized American, I think about citizenship and I love my community and I sure as fuck love my country and my state. And I'm not going to sit back knowing that potentially a thousand people could die in Santa Cruz and not try to do something. And I think a lot of other people in the community feel the same way. And that's where the community pressure came. And And then the leadership did the right thing. Now look i don 't know if they're, how deeply they 're on it, and there may be still some holes or whatever, whatever and by the way, the whole time at least we were pounding on them, we kept saying the same thing we 're not just throwing rocks from the sidelines. What do you need? Oh, OK, my fucking wife has been making homemade sanitizer and giving it to the cops and the fire department she 's been making homemade face you know those plastic things that go over i don 't the shields. You're making homemade shields. We donated 100,000 gloves to the hospitals here. So while we're throwing rocks, we're also saying, hey, look, we want to be part of the problem. Do you need help putting up emergency beds? What do you need? Do you need money? Do you need space? What, what do you need? If, you, if you're transparent with this about the plan and the gaps, rather than hiding, there are many in our community who are saying, we want to stand up and help. So this is not just saying you're assholes. We, we want to solve the problem. We don't want to make, you know, our county leadership or our city leadership assholes. That's not, you know, and there's people on Facebook and next they're thing. Oh, well, supervisor, so-and-so doesn't care about their constituents. And look, I I don't know what they care about. We're trying to get to a result here and we're applying pressure to get to a result, but we also want them to know we're not just assholes yelling, okay? So anyway, my point is, put the pressure, contribute what you contribute. But to, to, I think your point, don't demonize these people. We're trying to do something together with them. We're not, if we tear down our county leadership and our city leadership, and we don't have any kind of an olive branch for them to work with us, they're just gonna treat us like screaming assholes. And we're not trying to be that, right? We gotta find a way to bridge that gap. And so while yelling, we're saying we want to help. We're yelling because we're afraid and we want a plan and we want to make sure we're mobilizing. And if you start doing that, we'll do anything we can to help you. You just got to tell us. And then when they start doing the right stuff, we applaud them for doing the right stuff. And you're not going to, you're not going to hear me say bad things about the supervisor in my part of the County who did respond, even though I didn't think he responded in the beginning. So that doesn't matter. He's on it now. Good. So is our county health officer. I was all over her. She responded. She shut the beaches. Wow. Good. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership.
0: Chris, uh, great stuff. And I think, you know, what you're describing there without saying it is it's, it's not their problem. It's everybody's problem, right? You know, we get into that and your, your points there about leadership. You've got way too many ideas for us to get to here in um uh, in our time and space for today. But I wanted to ask Chris, your uh, your pointing number three about, you know, if we could extend this idea of what you've just been talking about, digital leadership. So coming out at, a, you know, whether this is at a company level, uh, whether this, this is a, a work group, you know, whatever it happens to be, people in a community, people dealing with schools, something like that, you had some very good notions there about digital leadership. And I think it started with the notion of communication.
1: Yeah and um I I don't think we talked about this last time so uh, we recently on on Follow your different had um Chris on. we didn't talk about that we didn't talk about him last time did we yeah um you know it's just with the amount of alcohol consumption around here lately
0: really, can't <laughs> keep it all straight well,
1: you- <laughs> by the way did you hear that um apparently a uh, hard alcohol uh, so alcohol sales are up a- approximately 50% and hard alcohol is 75%. <laughs>
0: it's just hoarding. People are keeping it for on on reserve. That's all it is. In the zombie
1: apocalypse the first thing you need to have is, is 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 a lot of alcohol. So um um Chris Fussell is about as decorated a navy seal as there can be. Uh an extraordinary um servant leader. And um, shortly after nine eleven, he became in part, he became the chief of staff for uh, four star general Stanley McChrystal. And uh, McChrystal, under McChrystal's leadership, that team essentially had to reinvent the way the military worked in the th- in 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 the theater of war, because for many many decades, of course, um, the paradigm was well. There's a group of people over here and a group of people over here and they're wearing uniforms and we're uniforms and all the guys wearing and the red uniforms, kill the gray uniforms and away we go, right? Charge. And then we went to, um, this whole paradigm where you didn't even know who the bad guys and the good guys were, where bad guys would wear burqas because they knew the Americans, uh, would try to be respectful of the women And if they were wearing a burqa, they could get close to an American service member and blow themselves up. And so you're just talking about a completely different, uh, literally street corner to street corner situation, and a situation where the only way to defeat the enemy is to partner with the people, because the enemy lives amongst the people. And what you have to have is the inverse of a top-down uh, control model, which is historically the military model, which, of course, is historically the government model, which is, of course, historically the corporate model, right? There's the chief poobah at the top, and then there's the minions in the bottom, and there's a, quote, command, uh, chain of command, and away you go. Well, McChrystal understood that um, that doesn't work. Now, these are my words, not Fussell's words, but essentially invert the model. And what Fussell and McChrystal did recently, uh, and I can send it to you if you like, they wrote a spectacular op ed piece for the New York Times. Uh, and the title was roughly something uh, you know, what post 9 11 what taught us about crisis leadership. And essentially, here's the aha we're in a distributed digital network leadership model. Now, that might sound like jargony crap, but it's not. What McChrystal and Fussell and others learned was the way this had to work was there were teams on the ground. Those teams on the ground had to understand the mission and what what the result was they needed to go uh, get done. And then they needed a tremendous amount of autonomy to go get that done. They also needed to be in deep communication as network nodes, because if you learn one thing here, that... The, because the enemy was changing so much and so uh, versatile and so amorphous, if we now realize, okay, they're, they're, they're wearing burkas and blowing themselves up. The first time that happens to the, our earlier discussion on data saves lives in a crisis, the first time that gets identified and shared, and now everybody on the team can be alerted, but bam, all right, now we, uh, we're paying attention to something we weren't paying attention to before. And so there's this thing about clear direction clear marching orders against a set of results, tremendous autonomy, deeply connected in a data network that shares information in a network way, so so not just top-down, but across all the nodes so that the learnings can be captured and uh, in a business sense monetized and in a military sense uh, understood so that a new set of best practices and capabilities emerge rapidly, right? That's my synthesis of what this this leadership model that um, McChrystal and Fussell and others on the team built, as part of that, and they talk about this in the New York Times op-ed piece, uh, Bob. What they talk about is digital leadership, and one of the aha's McChrystal had was the communication paradigm uh, before was general the four star would talk to his direct reports and then and then they'd filter it back and they'd pass it all around and do the hokey pokey and that's how it goes right the 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 classic um org chart type model that we all understand he said no we're not doing that and he instigated a daily all hands call and on the call he did it in video so that we could see each other because he, he in an environment where he knew he, he being four-star General Stan McChrystal knew that the likelihood he was going to be person to person with any of these folks anytime soon, because there were so many thousands of them was de minimis. So he knew that he had to look, he had to look the troops in the eye. So digital video communication with rack rapid uh, radical communication and radical transparency. He told them what was up and they could tell him what was up and there was Q and a, and there was sharing of information. And so one of the things that uh, Navy SEAL, Chris Fossil, who's now the president of the McChrystal group, they have about a hundred person consulting and training company that does leadership and, and is also working with uh, various government agencies right now on this problem on the on the on the corona uh, the coronavirus uh, coronavirus yeah it is a coronavirus the coronavirus problem um and so they they teach people and consult people essentially on this distributed leadership model and a big part of what they are saying to be effective is uh, uh digital leadership and a part of digital leadership is being able that the, the skill of getting on a Zoom and being able to talk to people and look at them in the eye and and be radically transparent and take any questions. Don't hide from it. Don't hide from, I don't know. Don't hide from, we're working on it. Don't hide from, man, you might be right. Do you want to help us on that? Whatever it is, right? And uh, it was a radical thing in the early 2000s for a four-star general to implement this style of quote digital leadership and the aha for me in this bob is you know what physical distancing is going to be around for a long time the likelihood we're going to wear masks you know a lot of people in asia wear masks long before this right that might be commonplace in a lot of the rest of the world now Uh, there's a lot of things that might change but one of them that we know is that more and more of us are going to be conducting business of one sort or another digitally at home over video using platforms like zoom and that radical transparency and um in in the case of four-star general mccrystal mccrystal in wartime daily uh, digital communication and your the aha here is Your ability to succeed as a leader is now a function of your ability to be a digital leader. And I would add a digital video leader.
0: Bottom up. Yep. Chris, uh, powerful, powerful things you got going on here, right? You know, you sweep from your, I know you've, you've talked with McChrystal before now with, Chris Fussell to the people in your community to the venture capitalists that you went for, you know, seeking, uh, Hey, Chris, everything will be fine. May 1st, boom, you know, (laughs) don't worry. Uh, So a lot going on. Um, Let me just ask you for a final thought here. Sort of if you want to either pull together some of the things you've talked about or reemphasize a point, how would you want to close out?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the ahas for me here is that um, in a crisis, data saves lives. And we have seen the ability to adjust, change, scale, and execute in the private sector. And we've seen that in the public sector. Um, And I think there's a delta. And I think it's about time for... um, our uh, government leadership at all levels, and our leadership in the healthcare system, to um, get with the party. So it's time. It's time for digital transformation. And just like um, with our local leaders, um, I'm not ascribing anything to that. It's just. It's just what's so. And so I think it behooves us in the IT world in the information technology world um, to figure out how we're going to stand up and drive a a massive data, a massive digital agenda. Um, Because I think in times of crisis, here's another way to say it. If you're not going to stand up now, what would it take for you to stand up Point A. Point B, I think the biggest thing we can contribute in a crisis is the thing that we have the most mastery or expertise in. And so what that means is if you work in the information technology world, whether you're, you know, a head of IT ops or you're an entrepreneur building a digital business in Silicon Valley, if you are in the technology world, What we have to contribute is technology and our expertise and our understandings in and around how to use technology and think about technology. It's time for us to stand up and it's time for us not, I mean, we can be critical and I think I'm being critical that, that there isn't been digital transformation, but not critical in a, fuck you, go fuck yourself way, but critical in a, hey, wake up and maybe we can get something done here together way. And so I think that's, that's the big thing. If you're in the technology business in one way or another, what I'm saying to you is not only do you have more to contribute than you might have thought that you had to contribute, Cause I've learned that I have more to contribute than I thought that I had to contribute. So maybe that's true for you too. I'll say something that might sound outrageous. It's an imperative. The internet is an essential service. Data is an essential service. The cloud is an essential service. Our mobile and wireless networks are an essential service. And those of us who know how to build and run either native digital businesses or businesses uh, that didn't grow up native digital, but now are transforming to digital. Those of us with those expertise, I think, and I say this like an idea, I say this like hopefully something that's empowering. We need to figure out how we, get the public sector on board here in a meaningful way and fucking fast because I think that data saves lives in a crisis. I think the deep, intimate knowledge of the healthcare supply chain, of the food supply chain, all the things that we've been talking about, Uh, you know, that incredible episode you did with my brother, adopted brother, Big Ben Ruiz recently, which I loved. You know, those sorts of ideas with all of our digital leaders, right? Um, If you're in the tech business, that's what you have to contribute. And the aha for me has been, that's a bigger contribution that I understood a couple of weeks ago. And the difference we can make in the information technology business by helping to digitize the public sector, the way much of the private sector is being digitized, will actually save lives. And so, I think for those of us in the tech industry, it's time to stand up and ask ourselves, "What is the difference that we can make?" And I know so many technology leaders have already been making a huge difference. And I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired by the Eric Yuan's of the world, the founder of Zoom, who gave his shit away, uh, and and when when his when his security stuff was exposed as a problem. They got on it and he admitted publicly that they screwed up and they were fixing it. And I think, you know, Netflix, the job they've done entertaining all of us. And, and I think, uh, you know, our ERP systems, our supply chain systems, our, our network infrastructure, I think the telecom companies, as much as, you know, we all, myself included, like to bitch on them and complain about them, you know what? hey, man, AT&T didn't go down. Text messaging is up, you know, I don't know, more than 50%. I don't know, I've seen conflicting numbers. But like, hey, hey, T-Mobile didn't go down, man. You know, those are very powerful things. And so, so, so we as an industry, I think, have been contributing. And the aha for me is there's way more for us to contribute. There's a big opportunity for us to step up and figure out how we drive public private partnerships to digitally transform so that we can execute, so that um, we can A, deal with the situation we have right now and B, set ourselves up so that we are as digitally capable in the private sector and the public sector. And I think that's an extraordinary opportunity for all of us who are in the tech business.
0: Radical generosity meets radical engagement. Yes, sir. Chris. Love you, my friend. Thank you. Great, great, great pleasure uh, hearing you go and uh, seeing what's coming on. And um, we'll we'll stick together and uh, hammer through this, right?
1: Yes, we will, brother. Love you too.
0: All right, folks. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for being with us here. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay generous. We'll see you next time.